along with the moderator, can I just say, along with the rest of the Commission, what a pleasure it is to congratulate you, Andy and Stephen, Josh, Scott and Peter, on your calling and ordination this evening to the eldership and to wish you and your families and the whole congregation of Ravenhill huge blessings in your life and witness together. In order to encourage our hearts for service, please turn with me then to the Old Testament passage which Colin read to us a little earlier. It's the account of a vision of God which the prophet Isaiah had while he was worshipping at church in the year 742 BC, an event which transformed his life forever. But first of all, let us pray. Incomprehensible, yet not unknowable God, we turn to you now and pray that in your mercy you might be gracious to us and grant us a glimpse of your glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. Today, as you know, is the 70th anniversary of the accession to the throne of Queen Elizabeth II her Platinum Jubilee. The UK has been fortunate to have been blessed by her reign and it will be a sad and momentous day when she dies. The death of a monarch is always a significant event in the life of any nation. And if that passing has been after a very long rule, as it was with King Uzziah, it was especially significant in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord seated on a throne. The king was dead. Long live the king. King Uzziah had died, but the Lord was seated upon his throne. And his throne, we are told, was high and exalted. And his train, the train of his robe filled the temple. The robe's un, uh, seeming unending length is indicative of the one who is supreme in his omnipresence, immense in his omnipotence, unsurpassing in his glory. Above him were seraphs, angelic beings, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying and they were calling out one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of the seraph's voices, verse 4, the doorposts and the thresholds of the building shook and the temple was filled with smoke. A number of weeks ago, a young lad from a solid middle-class American family was convicted of multiple murders. The judge gave him opportunity to explain why he had done what he had done. And this is what he said. My parents taught me two things, to believe in God and that God doesn't really matter. If Isaiah's vision of the Lord seated upon the throne tells us anything, it is this, that God is to be treated with the utmost seriousness. 
and that God has the right to rule over our lives with absolute and complete authority. C.S. Lewis grasped that, having come late to faith in Christ. This is what he said. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Parents, it's not enough that we teach our children that God merely exists. Even the devil knows that. Now, our responsibility first is to take God seriously for ourselves. It's not sufficient that we teach our families about God. It is vitally important that we and our children and our congregations encounter God. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that each week in church, Marty taught about the Holy Land. Every week, the preacher highlighted the importance of Hebrew and Greek. He showed you maps. He pointed out the towns, the villages, the mountains of Israel and Palestine, Golan and Jordan. He described in detail the topography and archaeology of the land and waxed lyrical about good books from the Middle East, how he had greatly enjoyed and benefited from them. And then one day you decide, do you know something? I'm going to visit the Holy Land myself. You go online, you buy a plane ticket to Tel Aviv, you land at Ben-Gurion Airport and say the words shalom and hallelujah. You visit Cana of Galilee, Bethlehem of Judah, Caesarea Philippi, Nazareth, Jericho, and Jerusalem. You swim in the Dead Sea and paddle in the River Jordan, and you come home animated. What you once knew in theory, now you have experienced in person. And that's what happened to Isaiah. Through this vision he had, he encountered God, and this revolutionized his perspective and transformed his life. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There are seven perfect things I would like you to notice about Isaiah's vision here in Isaiah chapter 6. Seven glimpses into the glory of God, which when experienced revolutionizes faith, service, and and ministry. The first one is this, that God is alive. Uzziah was dead, but God was alive. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Think of all the prime ministers, presidents, and potentates who, with all their personal agendas, exercise power on planet Earth. In 50 years' time, all of them will be gone. But the low earthly rulers rise and fall, the Lord, who has never had a beginning, will never cease to be. Glimpse number one of God's glory. He is alive. Two, God is authoritative. Note, please, where God is located. He is seated on his throne. In other words, God is supreme in his sovereignty, composed in his demeanor, and sovereign in his supremacy. 
God is not worried, anxious, or at his wit's end. He is seated on his throne. We don't give authority to God over our lives. He already has it. We can pretend, of course, that he doesn't rule, or else we can own it with joy. God is not to be questioned, criticized, nor railed against. We may weep with perplexity, but we may not rebel against his sovereignty. God is authoritative. There is no one above him. He is our final appeal. Three, God is all-powerful. The word for that is omnipotent. In his vision of God, Isaiah sees that the Lord is high and exalted. He is not one of many thrones, nor does he share his glory with any other. God is exalted. He is of unlimited power, high and lifted up. God is all-powerful. Four, the reign of his the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, God is resplendent. The glory of God extends as far as his robe. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about the lavishness of God in, in his creation, the complexity of shapes and colors and senses and designs which is made, the extravagance of the stars and the universes between 100 and 400 billion stars in our galaxy, and our galaxy, only one of 100 billion other galaxies. God is lavish in his exuberance, resplendent in his glory. His train fills the temple. Fifthly, God is revered. Above him, verse 2, were seraphs. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts of the temple and the thresholds shook. As these heavenly beings hover over the divine throne, with their wings they cover their eyes, lest they look upon God and be overcome by his glory. They may be heavenly creatures, but they are also created beings, unworthy to glance at the sheer brightness of God's overarching glory. And with two wings they cover their feet. Exposed feet before a king would be a sign of disrespect and defilement, so they cover their feet. And with two they fly, and whether we do or not, they worship the Lord, for God is to be revered. Sixthly, in his vision, it is abundantly clear to Isaiah that God is holy. No, not just holy, three times holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Israel's God is the most godly above all gods holy. There is no one like him because he is beyond all comparison. Holiness starts with God, and holiness is defined by God. God is holy not because he keeps the rules, but because he makes the rules. No one is holy like the Lord. His three times holiness places him in a realm all by himself, and there is no land, no place, no sphere untouched by his purity, power, and absolute holiness. And seventhly, God is glorious. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. 
Our God is a consuming fire who hates iniquity and cannot bear look upon injustice. No wonder Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a person of unclean lips, and I, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The closer you are to the light, the more it reve reveals imperfection. From the soles of his feet to the tip of his head, Isaiah realizes in the presence of the living God just how wretched and filthy and unclean and ruined he really is. And in the presence of the living God, he recognizes he is part of a faithless and sordid community. No wonder he cries out in despair, Woe is me, for I am lost. In the awesome, holy, majestic company of Almighty God, it's not just the Metropolitan Police Force or Boris who have unclean lips. It is you. It is me who are in deep, deep trouble. And because of our unclean lips, we are under the righteous and holy judgment of God. What is the biggest problem in our world today? Hold a Vox Pop at Forest Side Shopping Centre. And I guess up there we may well hear replies such as climate change, the, the price of fuel and poverty, youth suicide, Kim Jong-un, Russia and Ukraine. These and many other difficulties are indeed major problems in today's world. And yes, Christian people can and should be stirred to prayer and action because of them. And yet all of these enormous challenges are nothing when compared to this, that humanity is in total and utter alienation from God. In the presence of Almighty God, humankind is undone, ruined. How then can Isaiah or indeed any one of us stand in the presence of a holy one with lips that are unclean and live? We, we can't Unless, unless that is God does for us what we can never do for ourselves. Remove our guilt, purify our lips, atone for our sin, so that even as the word woe is on the tip of his unclean tongue, one of the seraphim flies over with a burning coal from the altar. The coal was so hot that even the seraph, this fiery heavenly creature, cannot bear to touch it. He has to use tongs in order to pick it up. And with the live flame, he sears the prophet's mouth and declares, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Heat is powerful. A flame can become so hot it actually can purify an object like silver refined in a furnace. So the word of the Lord purifies seven times. Psalm 12 verse 6. God is a consuming fire. And here's the mystery. That the Lord Jesus, the second glorious member of this holy, holy, holy God. On the cross was high and lifted up, not in order to condemn the world with his red-hot wrath, but in order to make atonement for it by his precious blood, 
so that we who were deserving of nothing but being consumed by fire might instead be cleansed of all our guilty stains. As Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 53, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. On the cross, an offering was made and atonement effected. Guilty people need purification in order to live in God's presence. And sinful human beings require atonement before becoming messengers of God's perfect and holy will to this lost and needy world in all its complexity and alienation. And so it is not in spite of God's holiness that Isaiah becomes the recipient of God's great love and commission. But rather it is because of it. And so in verse 8 we come to these astonishing words. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? No, I've quoted that wrong. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? In the light of all that we have done for you, asks the triune God, what will you do for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. What Isaiah had just experienced for himself now compels himself to make himself available to the Lord for this world, Cleansed and forgiven, empowered by the one true living Lord, Isaiah is now able to offer himself to the Lord, send me. In view of your incredible holiness and greatness, might and power, I'll go. In view of the desperate need of this wretched and sinful, hell-bound world, here I am, send me. And so as we finish, where does that leave us this evening? As individuals, as elders, as a congregation, as a commission, as people together who have encountered the living Lord? Well, let me give you three straightforward scenarios, any one of which may well be for you. First, God may be calling you to offer yourselves for missionary service overseas or full-time ministry of word and sacrament. Why not? If God has been prompting you to full-time Christian service, why delay? The Lord first prompted me at the tender age of three to serve the Lord as a minister of the gospel. And he can prompt you at the age of 63. Two. God may be encouraging you, Andrew and Stephen, Joshua, Scott and Peter, as you have presented yourselves for service in this place and in this time as leaders in God's church, that service in Christ's name is not sustained by self-effort, but by God's supernatural strength and empowering which he alone gives. Hold on to that, dear men. And thirdly, God may be reminding each one of us that as 
we go from this place of encounter into the regular spheres of life and service at home and work and our day-to-day living, however urgent in our task, however necessary our work, his presence and his purity is with us, empowering us, enabling us to be his effective prophets and servants in our day and generation. Above all else, let's stop playing with God. And start taking him seriously. Stop merely teaching our children that, yes, God exists, but it doesn't really matter. If God is God, then he is of infinite significance and incredible importance. Ah, But some of you may say, all this talk of mission and ministry and outreach, is it not too difficult and demanding? Well, perhaps. Were it not for one incredible thing? You see, this encounter which Isaiah had with the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 was not the first time that God had asked this question, anyone prepared to go for us? With the reply given, yes, Lord, I will go. For long, long before, far before creation had ever come into being, the holy, holy, holy Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who enjoyed complete union and communion one with the other in their infinite wisdom and understanding chose to make this world, including human beings, in full awareness and knowledge that rejection would surely come and rescue would be surely required. Ascending would be needed. One would have to go, not forced, but called, not coerced, but selflessly and willingly, making himself available, even though it would be costly, costing everything. And then when the question was asked, anyone prepared to go? As it were, the second person of the Holy Trinity stepped forward and said, Here I am. Send me. And at precisely the right moment and exactly the right time, a Savior was born in Bethlehem. Thirty-three years later, high and lifted up on the cross at Calvary, the Lord Jesus was stripped of his robe. We beheld his glory. Is then all we have heard this evening far too demanding, too difficult, too daunting? Or having had a fresh glimpse of God's glory, prepared to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. And so, Lord, that is our prayer, that whatever the cost, the implications, as you call, please also will you equip and enable us to say with every ounce of our being, here I am, Lord, wholly available. As for me, I will serve the Lord. And what we pray is in Jesus' abundant and most glorious name. Amen.
And just before we come to our final prayers, we're going to unite our hearts before God in prayer again. So let us pray. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in prayer, we acknowledge that we come before the one who is indeed high and exalted, the one who is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You sit enthroned in heaven, and yet you have come down to be with us, your children, here this evening. Moving amongst us by the power of your Spirit, speaking to us from your living word, and inhabiting the praises of your people. So, Father, it is in light of your glory, your greatness, and your goodness that we bring our prayers of intercession before your throne of grace this evening. We thank you for our brothers who you have called and ordained to serve you as elders in your church here in this congregation of Ravenhill. We pray for your special anointing on Andrew, Stephen, Joshua, Scott, and Peter. Father, may they be aware of the love and support of your people and of your presence and grace ever with them as they seek to love and serve you and your church in and from this place. Father, would you continue to bless this congregation with both spiritual and numerical growth in the days ahead as you continue on your mission in your world. We thank you that these men have been become elders not just in Ravenhill but in the Presbytery of East Belfast and the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. We give you thanks for the privilege it is to support and encourage one another across this part of the city. And so we pray your blessing on the network of partners in the gospel that makes up this presbytery. And Father, we long and pray for a reviving of our denomination in these days right across this island, north and south, east and west. Lord, let us be like that burning bush set us on fire for you, for your gospel and for your kingdom. Would you raise up shepherds for your sheep and laborers for your harvest fields? We pray for those who are currently studying for the ministry. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to partner with you in your mission in training and equipping your people. So help us be generous in our support of them and through the Students' Bursary Fund. Father, help us to be generous as you are generous. And we thank you too for the privilege that it is to be part not just of a local church fellowship, a presbytery, or a denomination, but indeed of your wonderful worldwide church family in all its diversity. A family that stretches across earth and heaven through time and eternity. For there is indeed one body, one faith, one baptism, one church that Jesus loves and gives himself for. And so, Father, with thanksgiving for prayers answered in the past, we humbly present our prayers before you this evening for your church and for your world. Would you pour out your spirit, speak your word and build your church, Lord, in this and every place until your glory is everywhere. For Father, we pray all these things for your glory alone, in the power of the spirit and in the name of our crucified, risen, ascended, reigning and returning Lord Jesus Christ whoever lives in unity with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. 
Amen. Amen.